Well, good morning. Uh, it's, good, it's good to gather with you all on this first Sunday of the new year, 2022, and two, we gather again just a week removed, a week or so from our, our Christmas Day celebrations together, though we continue to celebrate, we continue to celebrate the incarnation of Christ, that God entered into history to walk the earth as man. And so on this first Sunday of the new year, as we tend to do this time of year of looking forward, of anticipating, of, of planning and preparing, I think it's, it's, it's fitting, it's, it's helpful for us this morning to spend some time in the text that we will be in this morning in Revelation 12. This morning we have, we have a, wild, a wild story, a story of a dragon and of a pregnant woman. So what are, we, what are we to do with this story? Well, to be sure, we need not be afraid of the stories in Scripture, even of this nature that we see today, or afraid that these stories are not true. But rather than a retreat from reality, story can help us rediscover reality, as C.S. Lewis puts it. A veil is list, lifted for us briefly this morning to see the heavenly reality, and consequently, we better see our reality on earth. And so John, our author this morning in our, in our story, does use known mythological conventions of his day. But John also speaks with Christian imagery in such a way that thankfully, rather than a need for a deep understanding and dependence on ancient mythological stories to understand his vision, as is true throughout apocalyptic writings, particularly in the book of Revelation, we are to turn to the Old Testament to better understand John and his vision. So, we will set the stage first today, and then we will see the drama unfold. There are two main sections of John's vision and text which we will follow. Our first section in our time together will point us to look up at heaven. This is verses 1 through verses 12. Here our focus will be on perspective. Gaining a right perspective of the heavenly, heavenly reality and consequently a fuller under, understanding of the reality that we too are in. Our second section this morning, which will lead us to our conclusion, will point us to look back down to earth. And this, beginning in verse 13 to verse 17. Here the main thrust will be perseverance, having a right perspective of the full reality of our situation. We'll be, we will be reminded that we have all that we need right here and right now, and our hearts too will then be exhorted to persevere to the end in this drama that we are a part of, till either we are called home 
or to alert the Lord returns. And so we begin by turning our attention to heaven. Before entering into the drama, John sets the stage with the first of two signs. A woman described as being clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and wearing a crown with 12 stars on her head. This woman, as the text says, is described as being clothed with light. The words of Psalm 104 come to mind where God who is himself light as John elsewhere testifies in Scripture, is described as being clothed with splendor and majesty and wrapped in light like a garment as he stretches out the heavens like a tent and sets the sun and the stars in their place. This psalm is a retelling of the creation account. And two, it gives us words and imagery from which to draw. This woman is identified with light, to be sure, contrasted with darkness. And a light so bright that is the sun that that we ourselves cannot now look at it directly with the naked eye. The woman also is depicted as having a certain dominion over creation. And this is expressed through the phrase, under her feet, here referring to the moon. This phrase of something under one's feet is is, uh, seen elsewhere in Scripture to describe authority or control, dominion. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, Ephesians 1. Or you've put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subjected to him. Hebrews chapter 2. Again, the woman, on her head now, we see a crown with 12 stars. Similarly, crown represents authority, royalty. And the 12 is a significant number in Revelation as we've seen before. Here it might likely represent the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, suggesting the woman's identity. But before addressing that question fully, the woman is also, as we see in the text in verse 2, pregnant. Crying out in birth pains and in agony of giving birth. This This pregnancy is central to what leads to the great drama in this chapter. So who really is depicted here? Who is this woman? Well, many in the church have said Mary, who is the mother of baby Jesus. Uh, But but simply put here, given, given the context... And of other similar descriptions and representations that we've seen in Revelation itself, the woman here depicts the people of God at large, the community of the Messiah, the church. If we look to verse 6 and 13 through 17, the text points to such an understanding as well, given the role of the woman in the drama. The second sign. The second sign that John tells us, which appears to him in heaven, was that of a dragon, a great red dragon. 
described with seven heads and ten horns. Here, the ten horns, alluding back to the fourth beast, it seems to be described in Daniel chapter 7, signifying strength. And on the dragon's head are seven diadems. A diadem is a crown which, too, symbolizes authority. The diadem seemed to be a direct counterpart to the crowns of the 12 stars on the woman's head. And so it appears that a conflict seems to be brewing between two competing crowns. Now we don't have to speculate at all who the dragon is, for that is given explicitly in the text in verse 9. The great dragon, that is the ancient serpent who is called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Again, the description here of a dragon with mythological influence is still rooted in the Old Testament. As George Ladd notes, the idea of a dragon as the mythological embodiment of evil is found in the Old Testament. References to Leviathan, the behemoth we see often in the Psalms, and Isaiah and Job. And to a fearful sea monster, such as in Ezekiel, he is also called the serpent. Amos and Isaiah, we find that name used there. But to the serpent certainly goes back to the very beginning in the Garden of Eden in Genesis, where he tempted Adam and Eve to disobey God and lured them to trust his voice. So our understanding of the serpent develops as we read through scriptures. The book of Job gives us another important revelation on the serpent, on the one called Satan. Indeed, it's a very, very challenging book, this Job, for us to to personally wrestle with. In the book of Job, we see clearly Satan introduced as an accuser in God's courtroom, calling sinners to account. And a main question posed in the book and also to us is, does Job love God simply because he gives him good things? Looking down at Job, Satan questions God, yeah, yeah, but see if Job really loves you if he doesn't have his wealth. Yeah, but does, does Job really love you if he doesn't have his family? Does Job really love you if he doesn't have his health? Does Job love God simply for who he is? Do we love God no matter our earthly circumstances? Or do we love Him because of our earthly circumstances? These verses back in Revelation 7 through 9 in this chapter, we'll see as G.K. Beale encourages us, let's look through the lens of a courtroom battle between two opposing lawyers. He even offers a midrash, a Jewish teaching, comparing Michael, the angel, and Satan to consider. Hear this. To an accuser, the angel 
Michael. Sorry, an intercessor, the angel Michael. And the accuser, that is Satan, before a tribunal. Each speaks in turn. And when each is finished, the intercessor sees that he is triumphed and he begins to praise the judge, that is God, that he may issue his verdict. And when the accuser wishes to say anything, the intercessor says to him, you remain quiet and let us hear the judge. So, from the serpent in the garden in Genesis, to Satan the accuser in in Job, to the dragon and the devil in Revelation, the devil's identity is progressively revealed to us. And so are his purposes. Satan's ultimate purpose, aim, devotion, is to frustrate the plans of Christ. And now that the stage has been set, We know our characters. The drama begins to unfold. Beginning in verse 4, the dragon, in a violent act, swept down a third of the stars of heaven with his tail, casting them to earth. In Hebrew poetry, there's this reoccurring convention regarding creation itself of, of being undone when tragedy happens. When God's creatures rebel against him. In Jeremiah chapter 4, for instance, it was the rebelling of Israel. God's chosen people, which said, was said to undo, in a way, creation. My anguish, my anguish, Jeremiah writes, I writhe in pain. Oh, the walls of my heart. My heart is beating wildly. I cannot keep silent Jeremiah continues, I looked on the earth and behold, it was without form and void. We call back to the creation account in Genesis 1. And to the heavens, they had no light. Here now, it is said that it is the act of the dragon which undoes or disorders creation. The stars of heaven that were said to have been swept down to earth. But this imagery, this, this description of the result caused by the dragon does not speak to the specificity of the dragon's destructive intent and behavior. More specifically... What is the cause of this cosmic event? Let's look to the next sentence. In a gruesome, gruesome scene, really, the dragon here is said, the text says, was to be waiting in front of the woman for the child to be born so that he could devour it. This is his aim and his intention. Now surely, the identity of the child, surely we know who this child is. We just celebrated the birth of Jesus, born of Mary in Bethlehem, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And just just consider for a moment the life of this child, Jesus, born of this woman, The Son of God entered into human history, taking on frail flesh. 
And after he was born, in his day, how did the ruling authorities respond? Well, as Matthew tells in his gospel, in order to target Jesus, he, King Herod, it is said, sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to that time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Plans were made by Herod. And it seems, too, at, at the same time, Satan, to devour the Messiah as a baby who was born in human flesh. She, in verse 5 here, gave birth to a male child. One, it is said, to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And so Mary did indeed give birth to Jesus. And in this account, immediately, it said, in Revelation, the woman's child was was caught up to God in his throne. The heavenly vision that John depicts seems to go straight from the incarnation, the Messiah's birth, Jesus' birth, to his ascension into heaven, passing over his earthly ministry, which culminates in Jesus' death on a cross and resurrection. Why is this? Well, given where we're at in Revelation and where the reader of this letter has already been, the Messiah's earthly ministry, it seems, has already been addressed from the heavenly perspective. If we just look back to Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. And so, here in our account, Jesus immediately ascends into heaven and is now seated at the right hand of God. The sent Son of God, in perfect obedience to God the Father, accomplishes his mission and and defeats the enemy and tones for sin and redeems a people for himself. And now he sits. His work is done. Such is the state of Christ. But what of his people? This is where our attention turns to in verse the woman fled into the wilderness certainly much could be said about how wilderness is used and understood in the scriptures we think back to it as a place of, of, of preparation and at the very least thinking back to Israel's 40 years in the desert similarly the place of, of Jesus' temptation by the devil was in the wilderness Matthew chapter 4, we, we hear again the devil took him at a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus responded, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. So again, in this account we see, it appears, two options. We are to worship Satan or or to worship 
God, to worship Christ. The wilderness is, is a place, too, of nearness, of nearness to God. And so God has prepared a place for her, this, this woman in the wilderness. In the text it says, the woman in the wilderness there is nourished. She's nourished by God for 1,260 days. So we have come across another number in Revelation. Numbers regularly symbolic in apocalyptic literature, which appears to be the case here. Uh, D.A. Carson helps us. He, he notes that 1,260 days divided roughly by the number of days in the month, gives us 42. 42 months is equivalent to three and a half years. And three and a half years is understood as a time times and half a time. This is what we see in the book of Daniel. Here Daniel, again from chapter 7, the ten horns. Again, we hear that. The ten horns of the kings who will come from his kingdom. And after them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones, who will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hand. Here it is for a time, times and half a time. There it is, that phrase, that, that symbol a symbol which was most likely widely understood by Jews to refer to the Maccabean revolt, that time, that intertestamental period of war and brutality, of the, of the desecration of the temple in Jerusalem at the hands of the Syrian Empire. So that is for a time, persecution and suffering and evil will take Place, but this time, a time, a times and a half, or, or 1,260 days will come to an end. It is a set period. And we are in such a tumultuous time. We're, we're persecution, where trials and suffering take place. This time is, is, is the time between, it appears from the text, between Christ's resurrection and his second coming. Yet, despite what often feels like a brutal time and age that we are currently living in, God still is near to his people in the wilderness. The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days, as verse 6 tells us. In other words, despite the trials and tribulations, God has protected and will provide for his people. God protects, provides, as he has done for his people, for the priesthood of all believers, 
for the messianic community, for the body of Christ, for the church. Now we'll return to the woman again soon, who is on earth. But first we remain with our gaze fixed upon heaven as war breaks out. The telling of this heavenly war is short. Michael, the guardian angel of Israel, as we see in Daniel, and his angels fight against the dragon and with his angels fighting back. And the very next verse tells us that Satan was defeated. And there was no longer any place for Satan, the devil, in heaven. The great dragon, who is the ancient serpent, was thrown down from heaven and landed on earth. Now, right, right in the middle of, of this drama here, we're helped, we're helped out greatly of how to, to interpret, how to understand this text as a whole with something like that of a narrator's voice cutting in to the scene. Verses 10 through 12, let me read that for us again. As a voice from heaven says the following, Now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. It seems to be that part of the coming of the kingdom of God includes the expulsion of Satan and and his influence from the heavenly realms. Continuing on, and, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. God's love is better than life, as the psalmist says. For whoever would save his life will lose it, Jesus says, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. We think of the martyrs throughout, throughout church history here. Um, though these individuals, not, not seeking to give up their lives, found themselves in such a place that they would be put to death. They'd be put to death because they did not renounce their allegiance to Jesus. Because they held fast to the gospel, the testimony of Jesus. But rejoice, for they have conquered, conquered even death. And their names are written in heaven. And so therefore... Verse 12, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. In heaven, there is now rejoicing 
So the devil has been cast out. The enemy has been defeated. But at the same time, there is a different response required from those on earth. Woe to you on earth, the text says. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath. Why is, the, why is this dragon enraged and coming to earth in great wrath? Well, because, because he knows his time is short. The devil has failed. The devil has failed to devour the child. He has, he has failed to frustrate the plans of Christ. He has been cast out in his influence in heaven and yet now he is turning in frustration to the woman on earth the church so the church now becomes the target in the dying moments of the dragon's rage And the time is short. An illustration, I think, is helpful to understand this idea that that despite, despite the devil being defeated, yet he still rages on. Most most famously, I think, the illustration used here is that of of World War II. The axes and the allies and And despite the progress in the war, despite the Allies gaining a foothold in the European theater, amassing all of the resources and the manpower, it was clear who was going to win. And yet, did Hitler surrender? No, they they continued to fight despite knowing that the war had been lost. Destruction continued to be caused. And this is of Satan. He knows he's defeated, and yet he continues to seek to destroy and cause harm. Evil, as we see, is irrational. But this is what we are up against. This, this is the spiritual reality that John gives us in this vision and revelation for the time and age we're in. This, this is the perspective that we need in order to know our enemy, what, what we are up against, and, and to be reminded that there already is a victor and his name is Jesus the Christ. John's heavenly vision, as, as we see here, gives us perspective regarding the fullness of our reality in our place in the drama of history concerning both the heavenly and earthly events. As the Apostle Paul reminds us, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so with such perspective, 
tuned into the great spiritual reality that we find ourselves in. We hear now a call to persevere as we look to earth in verses 13 through 17. Now that Christ has accomplished his mission and is back up in heaven, caught up to God in his throne, as verse 5 says, the devil turns his attention elsewhere. And now it is to the child, not is not to the child, but to the woman whom the dragon pursues. After being cast down to the earth, the dragon pursued, here again we see now looking at verse 13, the woman who had given birth to the Messiah, the body of Christ the church. But thanks be to God that the church is not left alone, vulnerable, helpless to the attacks of the enemy. The text uses Old Testament imagery again, here most notably calling back to that of the Exodus story in the Old Testament. Here, Exodus 19, 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And so the woman is said to have been given the wings of a great eagle in order to be delivered from the serpent in the wilderness. Our God is the God who delivers his people from darkness and to himself. Echoing verse 6, the people in the wilderness are there nourished for a time, a times and half a time. Again, God protects and he provides for his people on earth. Not even the serpent's attempts to sweep the woman away in a flood could prevail. Our verses, on verses 16 and 15, Schreiner notes again here, the language is symbolic. The serpent uses persecution and deceit and false teachers and moral depravity to overwhelm and engulf the church. The earth, however, opens up to swallow the flood, emanating from the mouth of the dragon. In other words, God provides means of escape for the church, just as he did when Israel was rescued from Egypt and the waters of the Red Sea, so that the church will not be destroyed by the serpents. In an effort to capsize the church and sink her to the bottom of violent waters, Satan uses false teaching and deceit and moral depravity. But God, but God keeps the church steadfast, firm on the solid ground that is Christ. And yet the dragon continues to be furious with the woman, God's people. 
and makes war with the rest of her offspring. All of God's people, those who keep the commandments of God and hold fast to the testimony of Jesus. To be sure, we are still in a time of war and the enemy is angry. The enemy is angry because he has been limited in his influence on earth, being cast out of heaven. The enemy is angry because he knows his time is short and that ultimately, ultimately he has been defeated. Satan's time to cause as much destruction as he can on earth is limited. But he continues to fight. So how do we respond? How do we live in this day and age? How do we persevere as the church? Well, we begin, as we saw in the beginning of this section, by becoming aware of the reality that we are in, the state of the war. And today we see the nature of the struggle in this vision, and we see persecution of the church. Persecution that has waxed and waned over the years of its history, but certainly will not cease until Christ's return. And we know the nature of the enemy, that he, that he whips his tail. We know Satan, the accuser, rages on seeking to harm. And how do we respond? How does the church persevere? The church perseveres by proclaiming the gospel. The church perseveres by preaching the good news of Jesus and His finished work, His perfect atoning sacrifice. We persevere and, and we conquer the enemy by the blood of the Lamb. We fight in the name of the victor Christ who has already won. And we cling to him. So when the enemy, the accuser of our brothers and sisters, when Satan comes for you this week, whether, whether a Tuesday morning or a Friday night and attacks you, how will you respond? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not really that guilty. Uh, look, look at all the, good, all the good that I've done. No. No, no, our sin is, is real. Our guilt is real. There is one, one place that we can turn to respond. And the only place that we can turn is to the one who conquers the accuser. We turn to the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, which silences the accuser. By God's grace, may this be our response when we are all together confessing our sin before God and to one in our gatherings. And may this be our response during the week when we're on our own and tempted to despair. The Lamb 
who is slain is worthy. And the merits of Christ is our only hope and plea in confidence before the accuser. We look to Christ who died for our sins, who defeated the enemy on the cross on a place called Calvary 2,000 years ago. In such moments too, lyrics, poetry can be powerful. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and I see him there who made an end to all my sin because the sinless Savior died. My sinful soul is counted free for God the judge is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. We have these words which we sing regularly in our arsenal from the hymn before the throne of God. So as we conclude this morning, Revelation 12 shows us, reminds us, Satan is real. Evil is real. Persecution is real. But God's victory by the blood of the Lamb is also real and silences all. The enemy is a defeated enemy that we're up against. God protects and provides for his people, and therefore we persevere by clinging to Christ and his work, trusting in the blood of the Lamb. We do this weekly. We, we, we proclaim Christ's death. We look to Christ and the blood of the Lamb weekly as we proclaim Christ's death at the Lord's table. And so let's turn there now to proclaim that together. And as we do, I invite you, would you please pray with me? Merciful God, we thank you that you, that you have defeated the enemy. We thank you, God, that you protect and you provide for us. Would you humble, would you humble our hearts, empty our hands in coming to you? And would you protect us against attacks from the enemy? Increase our trust. And would we love you solely for who you are, God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.